As we continue our time in Paul's letter to the Ephesians together, we will come this morning on an invitation, a command, an encouragement to be imitators of God, which is what the devil tried to get Eve to do, kind of. He's sneaky. Satan told Eve when trying to convince her to eat of the fruit of the tree, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, God is afraid of what you'll be like if you eat this fruit. When God tells you not to eat the fruit, God's being self-protective. And so you should be self-protective too. And that's exactly what Eve does. She says, well, God's afraid of me being that way, and look, this fruit allows me to be that way. It's being withheld from me, and so she does. She takes it, and she becomes the version of God that Satan had represented God to be. So in that same sense, we can't avoid being imitators of God. It's really just a question of which God we're imitating. And the God that we're actually called to imitate is described in Ephesians 5. This morning we're going to look at Ephesians 5, <coughs> verses 1 through 14. This passage, if you're using a sanctuary copy of the Bible, is on page 978. Now as you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Ephesians 5, 1 through 14. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not associate with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. <clears throat> Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We, we can't help but be imitators of the God that we picture in our own minds. We will always do that in one way or another, like Eve did. The real question is which God we're actually picturing. 
And so when Paul tells us here in Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God, he begins to fill out a picture of who that God is that we're imitating. He tells us, be imitators of God as beloved children. He doesn't say, be imitators of God as if you were beloved children. He says, be imitators of God as beloved children. One of the things that we will reflect about God or about our picture of God as we live and as we interact with other people, one of the things that we'll reflect about him is how we see him relating to us. If I see God as constantly on the verge of being frustrated enough with me to kick me out, then I'm going to have a tendency to imitate that in my interactions with other people. If I see God as really not caring how I live at all and thinking, well, it's okay for me just to sort of make up my own, uh, my own way of, of doing life, then I'm going to t- tend to extend that to other people as well. I'm going to be a lot like, <clears throat> I'm going to re- relate to other people a lot like I see God relating to me. And the call here is to be an imitator of God as a beloved child. <clears throat> We imitate him from a, posi- from a position of being dearly loved. We live from a place of confident privilege. Not privilege that we earned. Not privilege that we earn today any more than we did when it was first given to us. But it is a real privilege. If we're going to boil down what it looks like to be imitators of the Father who so dearly loves us, then what is it that we're mainly going to imitate? That's what he tells us in verse 2. And it's what we would expect. And walk in love. This is a love that gives from a place of confidence. God loves to give because God is totally confident that he is the never-ending source of everything good. God is not afraid that he's going to run out of good to give. And he loves to give of himself to others. If we know that we are beloved children of that God, of the God who never tires of giving himself, who never runs out of himself to give to others, and we know that we are his beloved children, then we are going to give from a place of confidence that Goodness for us and goodness through us is never going to run out. The, the place where this is modeled perfectly for us, of course, is in Christ. As beloved children of God, we imitate our loving Father by walking in love, and the way that we do that is in the way that Christ did that. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So, walking in love, as we would expect, is going to involve some sacrifice. We know that. You know that if you've ever tried to walk in love, you've experienced that. And I wonder if you've ever experienced the, the, the feeling that your, your sacrifice is being just sent out into thin air. You're sacrificing, and it doesn't seem like it's accomplishing anything. It doesn't seem like the person that you're sacrificing for is appreciating it. And as a result, they're not really responding to your sacrifice. And it's just going nowhere. They're not appreciating it. It's not accomplishing anything. It just feels like it's vaporizing. 
If that's what you feel at times, it's probably a lot like what Jesus felt when he was making the ultimate sacrifice. Almost nobody, perhaps nobody recognized the reality of what Jesus was actually doing when he was being crucified on the cross. There was a centurion who saw the way that he died and said, surely this was the Son of God. So he knew this was no ordinary criminal. This was somebody important. There was the thief on the cross who looked at him and said, you're innocent. There's there's something about you that doesn't belong to be here. Will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? But perhaps nobody really understood what his sacrifice was about, except the person that the sacrifice was given to. Jesus, we see even in this passage, gave himself up for us, but he wasn't giving himself to us. He was giving himself to God. And God was the one who recognized that his sacrifice was worth it. God was the one who received his sacrifice on our behalf. God was the one who looked at what he did and said, that is a fragrant aroma. That is pleasing. What you are doing in giving yourself up, unrecognized by anyone else, is worth it. And it works. And so Jesus, when he gave himself for us, was giving himself to God. And so it was recognized as worth it. And so we find ourselves in the same place. When we walk in love in a way that requires sacrifice, we do it for other people, but we we need to remember that we're not giving it to other people. And so if other people don't recognize it or it it doesn't work immediately in the way that we would like it to, we need to remember that God looks on our sacrifice as an expression of what Jesus has done for us as well. God is watching. Our beloved Father is watching as we enter in, in a miniature way, to the kind of sacrificing love that Jesus does, we are offering ourselves to him as well. He's watching, and he will make it effective. In fact, we'll see that effectiveness later in this passage. You face workplace politics politics anywhere. Certainly you're going to face politics um, just in terms of marketing over the next several months. But in your own life, do you face politics? Do you face situations in which uh, somebody, for instance, misrepresents you? Maybe it is in the office. And they spread rumors about you that you know are untrue. And you end up hearing about it later and it's painful. And you think, how am I going to undo this? And what kind of, uh, what kind of damage is this going to do to my reputation, to my career or What's this going to do to uh, my reputation with my friends or my relationships in my family? And it is a, it's a painful thing to experience. Are you tempted to lower yourself to the same level as the person who is abusing you in that way? Or are you tempted to lower yourself just above that level? And they're lying about you and damaging your reputation? And are you tempted, perhaps, to damage their reputation by telling the truth about them? And to not be as bad as them, uh, but to lower yourself just, just above their level. And in order to make sure that other people, uh, especially influential other people, know what a disadvantage that they are to the organization or to the family, What does 
self-giving, God-imitating love look like in that kind of situation? In a situation that really feels personally dangerous to you. It it doesn't mean that you never tell anybody the truth about yourself. It doesn't mean that you never uh, try to try to take those lies and make them right and explain what the truth is about the situation. But how do you respond to the other person in that situation? What does it look like to respond in genuine, sacrificial, Christ-like love to that person? Well, it can look like a lot of different things. But one of the things that sacrifice looks like is a willingness to ask the question, What's behind what this person is doing? Why is it that this person is being abusive? We all have answers to those questions, right? It's very tempting to oversimplify those answers and to say, well, this person is doing this because they're selfish. And that's the end of the story. They're just selfish. There's no other explanation that's necessary beyond that. They're just selfish. They're just mean. They just hate me. And those kinds of explanations sometimes have some truth to them. And they're also conveniently oversimplified. And real love goes beyond that. Real love uses what we could call a benevolent imagination. And to say, I wonder why this person is behaving in such a selfish way. Why is it that this person uh, is behaving in a way that's so mean? What might be behind that? It might be the idea that you must stop at nothing in order to protect your own interests. That might be the, their sort of golden rule. You must stop at nothing in order to protect your own interests. That might be the thing that was communicated to them from the time that they could understand words. Don't stop at anything to protect your own interests. Because if you do, if you, if you do not protect your own interests at any cost, then you're going to lose and you'll have nobody but yourself to blame. That kind of message given to somebody from an early age will result in someone who responds to you in a very selfish and mean way. And that is not a person to respond to with anger. That's a person to respond to with pity and with wisdom and with kindness. It's a lie. That if you don't look out for your own interests, nobody will and you only have yourself to blame. It's a lie and it's an effective lie and a deceptive lie. It's a lie that offers promises that end in emptiness. So, a key part of what it looks like for us to walk in love is to put off key forms of those deceptive lies in our own lives. We actually see that in verses 3 through 6. The opposite of living in grateful response to a loving father is in verses 3 through 6. And the, he des- Paul describes the what of that in verses 3 and 4. And then he describes the why. Why do we, why do we run from lies? Why do we replace lies in verses 5 and 6? <clears throat> First, verse 4. Or verse 3, rather. But sexual immorality... And all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. What's going on there? Paul really kind of describes two big 
categories, two categories that, that really are big in people's minds as well, the categories really of sexuality and of stuff or money. And we can respond to those things in two different ways. One way is to receive them both as a good gift from our loving Father to be experienced in dependence on Him. The other way is to say, these things are mine, and I will have them however I want them. Uh, in terms of sexuality, in our culture, one of, the, one of the big slogans is simply, love is love. You heard that? Love is love. Which, which means, it's shorthand for, I get to decide what love is for me. I get to determine what love is. Now, love is a big thing. Love is something that all people have some kind of experience of, so it's some kind of universal thing. And if I get to define what love is, then what does that make me? Love is love turns into shorthand for, I get to decide what love is, which is shorthand for, I am God. I'm my own God. I get to decide what this is. I get to decide how this ought to be used. I get to experience what I call love in any way that I want to experience it. Very similarly, covetousness asks, first and foremost, what can I get for myself? Because that's what my life is all about. My life, in the end, is about getting things for me. My life ends with me. That's the heart of covetousness. And as a beloved child of God, that gets turned right side out. My life does not end with me. My life doesn't start with me. My life isn't defined by me. My life doesn't end with me. My life is lived in connection with my own loving Father who never runs out of good or of goodwill for me. And therefore, I get to turn around and spread that to others. My life doesn't start with me. doesn't end with me. Love is not love. God is love. And this is my God. And so, the attitude that I'll decide what's right and I'll do it for myself is, Paul says, not proper among saints. Here you are. You are, you are called to this holy God. And so you're called to share His holy character as well. A holy character that is, in the end, self-giving. Immorality, in all of its forms, God is the one who gets to define. Immorality and covetousness are both fundamentally about taking. That's their very nature. They're about taking. The character of God is fundamentally about giving. So we're called to share that character as saints. Now, this kind of taking mentality to life can be expressed in action and in attitude, like it's described here in verse 3. And it can also be described simply with words. So we see that in verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. This is really the verbal version of verse 3. Taking especially those aspects of immorality and impurity and talking about them in such a way as to package them as appealing or clever. Or maybe just as no big deal. And we hear this kind of speech all the time. It's in so much of the entertainment that's available in the world today. 
And it is often packaged in a way that's really clever, that's really funny, that, that in terms of the packaging itself is really, really smart. And when you get something packaged in a smart package, it can make those lifestyle choices seem really smart as well. Why, why would you judge this? This is really no big deal. It's just a joke. And that is a strategy of the enemy that we need to be really attentive to. To package morally significant and really eternally dangerous choices as something just to be joked about. Which in the end is a pathway to celebrating them. We want to make sure that that kind of speech doesn't come out of our mouths. That we don't treat morally important choices and eternally dangerous choices as something that really is irrelevant, that doesn't really matter, that's just there to be joked about. It's actually supposed to be replaced with something that says, instead of me living for me, instead of saying, my life ends with me, what's the alternative? If, if I don't speak that way, if instead I speak out of a heart that's filled with a realization that I'm a child of a loving father, what comes out of my mouth instead? Well, he tells us, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. We have a great deal of reason for this thanksgiving because we have this loving father who puts us in a place of privilege, who puts us in a place of safety, who puts us in a place of fruitful mission. And that fruitful mission is crucial. It really matters. And he describes the why in verses 5 and 6. What is the end result of a life that ends with me? Well, it's a life that ends with me. That's where I end up. I turn myself into a black hole. Just like God said in the beginning, in the day that you eat of it, in the day that you choose to try to be God on your own, you will surely die. Verse 5, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now he is referring to somebody who, who does this as a lifestyle whose approach to life, as expressed in sexuality, is expressed in their approach to money and things and power, that it's a lifestyle that says, I am my own God. There are times when believers struggle and fail in these areas. But a believer is somebody who comes back to God and says, I'm not my own God. I, I, I behaved like my own God in this situation, but I'm not my own God. You're my God. You're my loving Father. This is referring to somebody who makes a lifestyle out of this approach to life, especially in these areas. When you choose to be your own king, you choose to not live under another king. That's the nature of being a king. When you choose to be your own king, you opt out of the kingdom of Christ. This is on your sheet if you're filling in the blanks. Those who choose to live in their own kingdom choose not to participate in the kingdom of Christ. That's the nature of what it means to be a king. And if you choose to be a king in a place where there's already a king, what's that called? That's called treason. We're not maybe 
too familiar with that word, especially in a king context, because we don't have a king of America. But it is treason. And under normal circumstances, treason is punishable by death. And when we try to set ourselves up, when somebody tries to set themselves up as king of their own life, in a life that is part of the universe that God is already the king of, that's treason. And by choosing to be their own king, they automatically choose to cut themselves off from an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Notice the thread of confident privilege that Paul extends to believers as, even as he lays out these warnings. He says, don't let these, be, these things be named among you, verse 3, as is proper among saints. That's who you are. He doesn't say become saints. He says you are saints. He says these kinds of things shouldn't be expressed verbally, but instead let there be thanksgiving because you stand in a place with so much to be thankful for. Nobody who does these things has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And what has he already told the believers in Ephesus? You have one. You have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. You belong. You are an insider. These are, these are not mainly warnings that, hey, don't step outside of this. They're encouragements that you are already an insider, so live as an insider. And one of the reasons for that is that there are outsiders who need to see you living as an insider. Let no one deceive you, verse 6, with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And there are people today, many people today, who stand in this exact place, who live under the identity of sons of disobedience, children of disobedience. This is where we were before Christ saved us. We were, chapter 2, verse 2, Sons of disobedience. Those who, all things staying the same, will face the wrath of God that they have in fact chosen for themselves. Saying that these things are no big deal doesn't change anything. Paul actually describes this same wrath in 2 Thessalonians 1. He talks about Jesus returning and being revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, then 1.8 of 2 Thessalonians, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. You will not surely die. That was the first promise of the enemy. But when you say, I am going to reject the one who gave me life, and I'm going to make my own life, I'm going to decide what it's going to be like, my life is going to start with me, and my life is going to end with me, then that is exactly what happens. When I say to God, I reject your love, all that is left is his wrath. For the Christian then, 
call is to live the kind of life of love that exposes the deceptive nature of these deceptive desires. The deceptive desires here, especially of of broken sexuality and covetousness. To expose those things by means of a life of love. He calls us, putting this in new words, to walk as light in verses 7 through 14. He's already told us, you are beloved children of God, therefore be or become imitators of God. And then he parallels that in verses 7 and 8. He says, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Parallel to you are beloved children of God. Therefore, do not associate or do not become partners with them. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Don't be partners of those who are still living in the darkness because you are not darkness. Notice he doesn't simply say you are in the light. He says you are light. Do not associate with them or do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Then he gives us a reason why. Why? What we're doing when we walk as children of light. And then he tells us something of what that will be like for us to learn to walk as children of light. Why? Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. You are a child of the God who makes and gives good things to others. He even causes his uh, rain and his sun to shine on the just and on the unjust. He is kind to unjust and unmerciful men as well as to his own children. This is a God who's always bringing forth what's good and true and beautiful. And we, as the children of light, as his children, have the opportunity to bring forth the fruit that is good and right and true. By the ways that we respond in wise kindness to people around us, even people who, because they're living by deceptive desires, treat us with abuse. So we imitate things, uh, we imitate the kinds of things that he does, things that people can look at and say, my heart cannot deny that what I'm seeing is good and reliable and beautiful, and I can't exactly explain why it's right, but I know that it is. The same thing can be true in this office politics scenario. As you respond to someone who is abusive to you with that benevolent imagination, with, with a heart that says, I wonder where this empty approach to life came from in the first place. Then all of a sudden, you have a brand new mission in the office. You have a brand new mission in your family. You have a brand new opportunity that's so much greater than the opportunity that presents itself at first, which is protect yourself. Make sure that you're okay. Instead, now you realize that you're not the one who's in a position of disadvantage. The other person is. And you have an opportunity to extend to them the grace of God. You have an opportunity to respond with quietness. You have an opportunity to 
overcome evil with good. You have an opportunity to uh, speak well of this other person, not in a way that's dishonest, but in a way that, that gives them the real benefit of the doubt in the way you speak of them to other people. You have an opportunity to speak of them in a way that's understanding and to speak to them in a way that's understanding. Now that takes practice, doesn't it? When, when Paul says that the fruit of the light consists in all that is good and right and true, and that that's what ought to characterize our lives, he doesn't give us a full list of everything that's good and right and true, which might be convenient, right? Because then we could get to work on our list. Why does he not? Why doesn't he? Because God isn't creating a line of drones. God is creating a new humanity. A human being learns how to do what's good and right and true. And so that's what Paul describes in verse 10. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Again, this might be easier if God just simply gave us a list of what was pleasing to him. But God doesn't only want us to do the stuff. He wants us to share his heart. He wants us to look at him and know him as he actually is and love what he loves and imitate him in that way. Guys, you know that this is the way that it works if you've tried to be pleasing to your wife. I trust you have. I also trust that you've stumbled at times in the process. If you haven't, please talk to me. We need you to teach a class. If you want to please your wife, how do you go about doing it? Well, you can ask her for a to-do list. That's not a terrible idea. That might work. But if you stop there, game over, right? Because you know that your wife doesn't only want you to do the stuff. She wants you to know her. She wants you to know what matters to her, what's valuable to her. She wants you to treat that as valuable, to own it as valuable, and to respond. Whether you're doing something on the list she's given you, or adding to that list and doing it, she wants you to know her heart. She wants you to know her values. She wants you to share them. You know that's true uh, of your children, if you've had children as well. And you may have heard them say, just tell me what you want me to do. And you know that's not the point. The point is that there are certain things they ought to value. You want them to share your heart. And so we are in the process <clears throat> of learning what is pleasing to the Lord. And there's such good news here that we can find it in increasing measure that as God's beloved children, we can actually live in such a way that he looks at with pleasure and says, I love the way that you are reflecting my character. I love the way that you're reflecting the saving work of my son. And that is a learned thing. We do it by taking the things that we do know and practicing them. So again, it might happen in the office. As you say, I really want to have nothing to do with this person who's been abusive to me. And instead you say, wait a minute, I'm the child of a loving father. A father who never runs out of good to give to me. This person cannot compromise the good that God intends to do to me. Instead of moving away from them <clears throat> or building a wall of self-defense, I'm going to remain open. I'm just going to have a conversation. I'm just going to start to ask that person about themselves. Uh, not in ways that are interrogating, in ways that are actually interested. And I'm going to give them an opportunity to express themselves. 
to express their own concerns, to express their own cares. I may not even ask, I may not even say anything about the fact that our relationship has been a little rocky. I'm just going to try to get to know them. I'm going to leave myself open. And as we practice, what we're really doing is practicing receiving from and giving out the Father who loves us so well. And as we do that, we learn more how to do this well. We learn more how to do this wisely. We learn more about our Father's heart and what is pleasing to Him. It happens by practice. And it is strategically evangelistic. You actually see that in verses 11 through 14. What is it that we're after when we set aside these approaches, for instance, to sexuality and stuff? We say, I'm not going to be my own God. What is it that, we, what is it that we're doing when we learn to do what's pleasing to the Father? We are shining a light. A light that exposes what's in the darkness. Verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead even expose them. Expose them can sound like, I know what you did last summer. Or, what happens in Vegas isn't going to stay in Vegas this time. Because I have a Twitter account. And I'm going to let people know. That's not what Paul's talking about at all. In fact, it would contradict verse 12. It is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. This is not a matter of exposing the things that are done. Those are often clear enough. This is a matter of exposing the nature of the things. Of showing that a self-centered approach to life is empty. That it ends in emptiness. Of showing that the promises of this kind of life go nowhere. That they're actually empty. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. It becomes known for what it actually is. Now, if we stop there, then we can leave somebody in realistic hopelessness. Your approach to life is not getting you anywhere. And we can actually show somebody that by living a different kind of life. And they can look at us and say, uh, you, you, you avoid these kinds of behaviors that really do appear to be destructive. And you're not angry about it. You actually live a life of thankfulness, of genuine thankfulness. It doesn't seem contrived. It seems like you're living with somebody who's making you confident. And when you live that way around me and I see it happen, it shines a light on me and I realize that my approach to life really is empty. Now, we do want people to realize that and we don't want people to stay there and that's not the only thing that that, that light does. Verse 14, For anything that becomes visible is light. That's not physics, is it? Anything that becomes visible is light. That's not the way light works in the physical world. But this is better than physics. This is the gospel. This is a better kind of light. This is the kind of light that not only shows something to be what it is, but transforms it as well. Just like what happened to us. When Christ shone on each one of us and demonstrated You are, in fact, a sinner. 
you are in fact subject to the wrath of God. And that's not the end of the story. I died in order that you might escape the wrath of God. I died in order that you might be adopted as his beloved child. When he shone that kind of light on us, it not only showed us that we were hopeless, it gave us hope as well. And that's really what the light we're shining is about. Our new life comes with transforming power. The kind of power that can help somebody to recognize this was the only place where I could find life before by choosing my own form of sexuality. By running after the money that I thought would offer me power and now I've realized it's never gotten me where I hoped that it would and I know that it never will and now in front of me I have real life. I have the real life of Christ and all of a sudden I don't even really have a decision to make because I've seen him for who he really is. It's not as if I feel like real life is found in Jesus and now I have an obligation to trust him. When I see that real life is found in Jesus, that's what happens. I do trust him and I come to him and the offer is for everyone. As we choose to live the kind of life that says my life belongs not to myself but to God, It's defined not by myself, but by God. It ends not with myself, but with God, and in fact gets extended to other people. We make a proclamation, the proclamation of hope in verse 14. Therefore, it says, and it appears that what Paul's doing is quoting probably a hymn that reflects passages in Isaiah. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is what Christ has done for us and what what we want him to do for others as well. This is our reason for living morally upright, thankful lives in order for people to see the transforming life of Christ, to trust him and to find life in him. Father, would you... Would you remind us throughout this coming week of the undeserved and secure privilege that we have as your children to live a different kind of life, not for the sake of looking morally superior to others, but for the sake of showing that there is a life that is real life, a better kind of life than a life lived on false promises, that it is better to be with you and to be like you, than to falsely attempt to be you. Father, we belong to you, and we pray that you would empower us by your Spirit, and use us for these purposes. In Jesus' name, amen.